Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. All right, I want to just open today with ongoing prayers for our listeners and friends and neighbors across the state of Iowa. Ten million acres of grain corn lying flat on the ground. Lots of grain silos lying flat on the ground as well. Um, we are going to have some conversations next week related to this with folks actually doing relief work on the ground. And as the scope of the devastation and its impact on uh, on families becomes you know, more and more clear. So just uh, just know if you are listening to us in Iowa today or you've got farm families affected by just that devastating straight line winds that came through last week, we just we just we want to lift you up in prayer today. Um, you've been in our prayers. We have not sort of publicly acknowledged that. So just um, just be sure if you've got friends in Iowa, be sure you just reach out to them and let them know we're, we're thinking about you. Um, if you if you have been personally directly impacted, um, we'd love to know that. We'd love to hear from you. You can text me at 877-933-2484, 877-933-2484 if you've been directly affected by, um, you know, this, that, just the devastating impact of um, those straight line winds across Iowa last week. I mean, I know it was across the, the larger upper Midwest, but um, we're looking at 10 million flattened acres of grain corn, and that's going to have uh, rippling effects uh, in lots of areas of the of the family, personal and national and even global economy. So let us know if you've been directly affected so we can get in touch with you, 877-933-2484. Um, all right, I'm a little jealous this morning. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. A little, little, little bit jealous this morning of um, the people in Harriman, Utah. <laughs> just a little bit, just a little bit, just a little bit jealous of the people in Harriman, Utah. Why? Because they got to play America's first mid-pandemic high school football game. It was played uh, yesterday at Mustang Stadium in Harriman, Utah. The Devil Darts beat the Harriman Mustangs 24 to 20. This is according to the Salt Lake Tribune. Um, and this is uh, the first uh, the first uh, uh, game um, being played across the country. Utah is one of something like 35 states that are going to try to play prep football um, this uh, this fall, 14 states and Washington, D.C. have already uh, suspended the entirety of the 2020 uh, 2021 football season um, for high school students. But, you know, little uh, little shout out there to uh, the Harriman Mustangs and the Davis Darts. OK, um, I know. Now, see, it's uh, some things that you cover um, now. You're going to wonder, well, how is it possible that a historic peace agreement brokered by President Trump between Israel and the UAE uh, doesn't top the news virtually anywhere today? Well, that's because there's um, there's always more to the story. There uh, are lots of players to talk about. There are lots of threads to pull. And so, yes, uh, breakthrough talks among the United States, Israel and the AEU 
announcement yesterday by the White House, the normalization deal. Um, these conversations actually started back in June. Um, and there's going to be a lot more to this story. So we thought we would wait uh, until we have a little more uh, robust information about it and cover it with David Aikman on Monday, which means that today we've got Matt Hawkins, uh, and he and I are going to talk about, um, well, religious liberty. That's our favorite subject matter area uh, to talk about. And so we're going to talk about um, the religious liberty approach, the approach to religious liberty storylines under the Obama-Biden administration, because that gives us some expectation of what we could expect uh, if Joe Biden, the presumptive nominee for the Democratic Party, were to become president. What would that mean on the religious liberty front if we were to look back and let history be our guide? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Matt Hawkins. Uh, He is the former policy director for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Uh, He served in Washington, D.C., and he was there in the Obama-Biden days, so I thought it would be fun to catch Mm -hmm. up with him and talk about religious liberty, his reflections on the policies during the Obama administration. Um, Matt, welcome back. Thank you very much, Carmen. Welcome back to yourself. Thank you. So if we... If we look, um, if we look at history, um, you know, as an indication and guide of what the future may hold. So you and I are going to yeah. seek to forecast um, what Joe Biden's approach to religious liberty questions and concerns might be were he to yeah. become the president of the United States um, by looking back at the time when he was vice president. What are some yeah. of the um, what are some of the storylines that we ought to be paying attention to? Sure. Um, Well, I think it's helpful to set context um, for American governance in general. And I think it's really helpful for for us and listeners to keep as a metaphor uh, what you just mentioned. American football is a really helpful um, uh, metaphor for American politics. Uh, don't take it too literally. Every metaphor breaks down uh, so far. And also do not think of it as um, Republicans and Democrats um, playing on, on the f- as the op- opponents playing on the field. Think of it as a different football game for each issue, uh, whether it's the pro-life issue or the religious freedom issue or immigration. Think of uh, the current sta- state of uh, law uh, as the scrimmage line. And you have players on both sides trying to get uh, their uh, own agenda across the field. And the unique thing uh, where the metaphor breaks down is that American politics, there is no uh, time clock that runs out. So American law, uh, even though a lot of it takes a long time to change, it is changeable. And so uh, you can kind of think of it as a football game with a, a, a never ending clock. Okay, so this is where we are. And so every every different election uh, changes things up. Jesus is going to come back. I just have to throw that in. It's it's not a never ending clock. Sorry, go ahead. Temporarily for 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 our for our temporal context, the never ending clock. (laughs) Don't steal. Don't steal all my hope on a Friday morning. Okay, or, or until our colla- or until our nation collapses because we are fighting over COVID, <laughs> uh, I, either one. Um, but uh, in theory, 
that that's kind of where things lie. And so um, if you're going to talk about Biden uh, and the Obama history, uh, the scrimmage line is is a good way to think about these things, and particularly on something uh, called um, the Hyde Amendment. Uh, the Hyde Amendment pro- prohibits uh, uh, federal dollars from going towards abortion. And this has been uh, well over 30 years of kind of the scrimmage line between pro-life folks and pro-choice folks to say uh, we there's the right to abortion, but uh, we're not going to use federal tax dollars to pay for it. Uh, that has been a long time agreement. Maybe maybe uh, pro-lifers, frankly, have been maybe a little too uh, satisfied with that with that um, uh, that balance of of power. Uh, but last year, uh, early in his uh, you know in the in the early in the primary season, uh, Biden took back, uh, basically rescinded his historic support of the Hyde Amendment, and uh, it no longer supports that. Which means uh, he would be pro. Uh, doing away with the Hyde Amendment and allowing federal dollars to be used for abortions. Now, um, that's a legislative thing, so the likelihood of that actually happening, uh, assuming Congress remains divided or, as usually happens, as we've seen, even if uh, they they win a majority for a couple years, uh, you know, a, a united government only lasts for maybe two years, um, where one party has all, uh, both the chambers, uh, both the Senate, the House, and the White House. Um, but what you will see, uh, I imagine you'll see a lot of what you saw in uh, the Obama era. Uh, it's maybe not so much Biden himself, um, but the levers of power at the national level of the Democrat Party are going to err towards uh, everything that we've seen um, for the kind of the, the fallout of the sexual revolution, um, which means that uh, se- uh, sexual identity, uh, sexual orientation, gender identity, um, and is going to emphasize is going to kind of take precedent over things like religious freedom, um, in, in their view. And, uh, you can kind of see, you, you would see less conscience protections, uh, in the context of, uh, the abortion space. Um, that is the, both of those things are going to be largely governed by the department of health and human services, uh, which is currently run by, uh, uh, Trump appointees who, uh, frankly were vetted by mostly the heritage foundation. So let's give some credit where credit is due. Uh, so you have people running HHS right now who are predisposed to be friendly to religious freedom and conscience protections. Uh, and, and that's, that's not going to be so, um, under the Biden administration. So that's my short take. Uh, what are your thoughts, uh, going into this? All right. So my go to line on sort of all of this is elections matter. That's sort of my general reminder to everyone. Um, You have highlighted uh, things that the president can do directly. You have highlighted the relationship between um, who's in the executive office uh, and who are in all of those congressional seats, because there are some things that uh, the president can do through executive orders, but but many things that the president cannot do and would require an act of Congress. um, And then. The president having the opportunity to either sign those into law or veto them. So that relationship is uh, is critical. You've also talked about um, whoever is in the executive office uh, has all of these just really extraordinary opportunities to name a whole lot of other people, thousands of people throughout the federal government um, who come into positions where through their actions in agencies like HHS, uh, then can send, let's say, letters to schools demanding certain things or can send, you know, uh, letters exactly. directing certain things. And so uh, there there are policy implications to who is uh, elected 
not only to the office of president, but to obviously these congressional seats. The one thing I suppose we haven't touched on would be um, how religious liberty and these questions, conscious protections and these things would be affected uh, should the president, whoever it is, who is elected this time around, have the opportunity to nominate an additional uh, justice right. to the Supreme Court. So that's sort of the third, um, you know, the third branch right. of balance here. And um, and I would say, you know, we would uh, maybe not have great confidence that Joe Biden would nominate a person who would be particularly interested in the conscience protections that we as uh, religious Americans would favor in yeah. the just, you know, in a justice. Yeah, I agree. Um, and you, the scenario here is, uh, frankly, you, you uh, listeners, longtime listeners may have heard me be critical of the Republican Party on some of these issues. Um, they had a chance to codify Hyde into law permanently, uh, and they did not. Um, and something called the Conscience Protection Act passed both the House and the Senate, uh, and the White House uh, left it on the table during a conference, uh, something called uh, conference negotiations. Um, and so uh, they've done great stuff at HHS by their appointees and then their hiring and obviously we have two uh, good Supreme Court justices, but uh, the the lore, the the uh, kind of lore surrounding the Trump administration and religious freedom uh, and the pro-life stuff uh, can be exaggerated uh, by people who are friendly to us and, and want the same things. But uh, a lot of the the uh, executive orders that he's issued on, on religious freedom stuff is frankly, window dressing. It doesn't change a lot. Uh, it's the personnel stuff that really, really matters here. And so, uh, you know, in, in some cases, you know, like you said, elections matter. And then the personnel thing, uh, the personnel is policy is a really big deal. Uh, and I just, you know, Americans are going to be conflicted this season. Uh, mm -hmm. so you've got, uh, you've got Biden whose team is probably going to be really hostile to, uh, things like domestic religious freedom and, and, uh, and the abortion space. Um, and then the Trump administration, uh, who has good, done some good poli uh, personnel placement, um, but, uh, left some things on the table, uh, during legislative opportunities, uh, so okay. my, my friend Scott Klusendorf, who you know, uh, he on the abortion issue, he's you know his view is uh, you'd ra you'd rather have a a bad fireman than an arson uh, <laughs> near arsonist. your house, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, as bad as, as you might as bad as you might critique the the fireman, uh, that's one way that Scott looks at it. Uh, but it's going to be you know it's be give me a tough election this year. All right, Matt, uh, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, um, a couple of well, one story in particular that I want to lift up, um, and that is uh, a national organization called Young Life. Many people will be familiar with it. Yeah. I certainly am. I came to a saving understand or my understanding of a saving relationship with Jesus Christ through the ministry of Young Life. So this is yeah. uh, a story that is near to me. Um, they're being pressured to change their uh, their policies related to the sexual conduct of uh, of their volunteer leaders. Um, so that conversation up next with Matt Hawkins. We'll be right back. Now I'm alive and born again, rescued from the grip of sin. Continue my conversation with Matthew Hawkins. Um, Matt, uh, Religion News Service reported this week that Young Life is facing pressure to overturn its policies related to sexual conduct. Um, yep. Bring us up, bring us up to speed on this. I mean, I I would just say that it's the latest in a long list of evangelical organizations pressured yeah. to do this. Yeah, uh, Young Life is just kind of the next next in line, uh, and this is what I call. Uh, and have for years, the great parachurch dilemma. 
What do I mean by that? Well, uh, in the era where domestic religious liberty um, is in conflict, um, and I say, you know, pretty robust. Though. We, we, could, we could go down the list of uh, Supreme Court cases that have kept it uh, pretty solid. So uh, on, on the whole, I'm pretty, pretty uh, pleased with uh, domestic religi- religious liberty. Um, uh, but there are threats out there. And as we've seen with other uh, evangelical organizations, um, the the sexual revolution stuff just wants to claim one institution after another. And we've seen some fall. We've seen some stand firm. And in the religious freedom space with regard to the sexual orientation, gender identity, SOGI for short, um, what the pattern that I have looked at is that with each of these institutions, it's helpful, I think, uh, to look at what, to what extent they have a statement of faith and how specific it is. And I think what you see is a range, kind of a spectrum of Christian organizations, and the lighter or non-existent their statement of faith is, the more likely they are to cave um, to the SOGI uh, regime. Uh, and the more specific, the more robust their statement of faith um, uh, the more likely they are to weather the storm and stand firm. Uh, the point being that uh, Christian institutions, and I'm not saying Young Life is this, I'm uh, not really familiar with their inner workings or their debates um, any more than it has been reported publicly. Uh, but what I've seen in the past, some other Christian institutions, um, they kind of would have just fly under the radar and and not really uh, take a side in this. Uh, and I, you know me, I'm all one for diplomacy and, and working with others in collaboration. Um, but this is a situation where organization, uh, for the sake of the institution, really has to get this, shore this stuff up in advance. And so, um, for example, my alma mater, uh, Belmont University, years ago, uh, many, many, many years ago, uh, chose to, instead of being a, a robustly, uh, you know, theologically steeped uh, Christian institution, they described themselves as a Christian community. Uh, and there hasn't ever been, there hasn't uh, in a long time been any kind of robust statement of faith uh, that goes beyond that description. Uh, and so they've, they've turned uh, years ago, uh, to more of a secular, a secular university. Um, you've seen Union University that has a robust statement of faith, maybe stronger than some churches, uh, stand strong and uh, and not not and they've taken flack from outside, but internally, um, they've remained strong. Now I might be oversimplifying this, but this is just a pattern that I've noticed. Um, uh, World Vision went through this stuff back in uh, 2014 uh, and kind of reversed itself uh, after uh, after a lot of donors uh, um, uh, complained. Um, you know, this is a kind of, this this squishiness before parachurch organizations. Uh, a lot of parachurch organizations, uh, like the you know, we saw with the Boy Scouts, um, uh, have kind of had this kind of lightly Christian flavored institution and mission. Um, but when you get right down to it, there's not enough uh, kind of codified doctrine uh, for the institution to survive, um, and they're not houses of worship, and so um, they're going to take a little more flack and expect it to be adapt, adopted or kind of adopt uh, kind of new cultural values uh, in a way that houses of worship, I think, are a little more inoculated, at least in the short term. Does that, does that make sense? How does that analysis strike you? Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, I think that's right. I think that if you do not, um, if you do not clearly not only state, but codify exactly what you mean by the words that you're using, 
um, particularly words that can be squishy or people can understand in different ways. I mean, yeah. we just had a conversation about the differing understandings of the defi- of of religious liberty or religious freedom. I mean, there are those mm-hmm. who imagine that it has nothing to do with the kinds of things that you and I would think about um, and yeah. want to see addressed. And there are others who understand that um, that it does. And so I do think that for every parachurch organization, and frankly, for every local church, like you cannot rely on the statements that are made by your denomination. You actually have to show yeah. that you um, not only... Um, you know, you not only state these things, but the people in leadership hold to these values, hold to these understandings, and that you live them out. You walk them out, not yeah. just in your policies, but in your practices. You have to be able to show that um, these are not just convictions in in language only. These are actually your convictions, um, and you actually walk this out uh, in in your practice and in your life. So. Um, yeah, Young Life is just the latest yeah. of parachurch organizations to face this, and they will not be the last. So, yeah, and they, Matt, they you and I, okay. they've got a, they've yeah, got go eight, eight, they've got like eight articles of a statement of faith, which is which is more than some. Uh, so they have a fighting chance, given given my rubric for uh, uh, predicting yes. these things, but we'll see. <laughs> given the uh, the 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 Matt Hawkins rubric, which by the way would just be a great <laughs> book title, the Matt Hawkins rubric. Okay, I'll take um, it. if things could pass through it, then you know all would be well. Uh, Matt, thank you. As always, you guys can follow him on Twitter at MTHawk. You can also find him at MatthewTHawkins.com. We'll be right back. All right, we've talked about how to survive uh, an election season with Bruce Ashford. Next up, we're going to do survival tips for the rest of 2020 related to social media. Chris Martin joins me next. We'll be right back. Um, Okay, so right now we are giving away five copies of Open the Bible in 30 Days from Pastor Colin Smith from Unlocking the Bible. We're doing it every week this month. You can find out more and enter to win at MyFaithRadio.com. Again, we're giving away five copies of Open the Bible in 30 Days each week this month. You can enter to win at MyFaithRadio.com. We talked with Pastor Colin Smith here yesterday on the program. If you missed that, you go to MyFaithRadio.com. You click on the podcast uh, link or you click on the link for Mornings with Carmen. You scroll down. You find uh, you find the podcast you're interested in listening to. You click on it. Great way to be a missionary of the show by sharing those podcast links uh, with somebody that you know that might be encouraged by what we're doing here. All right. So two reasons to go to MyFaithRadio.com. Enter to win one of the five copies of Open the Bible in 30 Days we're giving away this week. And grab a podcast and share it with someone new. We'll be right back. There's a battle raging in homes today. It's a battle for control. Hi, I'm Mark Grayston with Parenting Today's Teens. Teens want control of their lives, but I've met many parents who are afraid to let them have it. Moms will tell me that their son is too immature to handle his own life. Or dads want to teach the kid a lesson that the world doesn't revolve around him. This battle for control is natural. But mom, dad, you can't hang on forever. The more you clamp down on your teen, the more she's tempted to control her life in other ways, like violating rules behind your back. Find little ways to release your grip. You're not losing the battle. You're training your kids to be healthy and independent. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find helpful resources at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store.
Joining me now, Chris Martin from LifeWay Social Voices. You can follow him on Twitter at ChrisMartin17. Um, Chris, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. So um, you just tweeted um, that this is a biweekly conversation. Thank you for clarifying that because I never can remember if something is biweekly or bimonthly. So it's so great. I, Thank I, you. I have, to, I have to look it up almost <sighs> every time uh, just to be sure. But biweekly can mean twice. I actually learned biweekly can mean twice a week or twice a month. <laughs> Bimonthly would be every other month. So I think I'm clear on it now, but I still sometimes oh, check just to be sure. Yeah. So – it's Paul wants to, to call you semi-weekly. Is, yes. No, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. No, yeah. semi It would be twice a week. It would be semi-weekly. Ah, <laughs> oh, got it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, this is, this is not the debate we're having today. Um, thank you so much for joining us again. Um, let's talk about some survival tips for the rest of 2020. We talked with Bruce, Bruce Ashford about you know, sort of the political conversation about what are our survival tips, um, you know, as uh, as people in this year's election cycle. Let's talk about as people on social media, as Christians representing Christ in the social media environment, give us some survival tips for the rest of 2020. Man, I, and I'm glad you had Bruce on. I saw that you, I wasn't able to listen, but I saw you had Bruce on earlier this week. And I think the piece you guys were talking about, we actually ran at Lifeway Voices. Yeah, it's, so I got it, that's where it is. Yes. Yeah. We just yeah, harvest the, stuff from there all the time. Oh, yeah. Well, hey, that's yeah. that's the site that I help run. So it's cool to hear, it's cool to hear you guys talk about that. Um, the... Uh, the rest of 2020 has been one of the most tumultuous years on social media that I can remember. And I've been working in professional social media for eight or nine years now uh, at Lifeway for seven, but I did a little bit before I got to Lifeway while I was in college. And, um, you know, as someone who works in social media, it's a, it's, you know, social media is like part marketing, part public relations. And, uh, but, but for even, normal people, you know, myself, when I'm using it from personal use or you or anyone else who's just using it for fun, it's just so full of landmines, uh, always, but this year, especially where you can somehow start a fight or start a conflict, some sort of disagreement that you don't really plan to start. Um, and sometimes people start fights on social media intentionally. Uh, but a lot of times people get themselves in disagreements or dust ups on social media, uh, on accident. And I think this year, because tensions have been so high for a whole host of reasons, uh, perhaps the primary of which is we're all just kind of cooped up in our houses or or uh, not going out at least as much as we normally do. And so uh, when I got on the podcast with my friends Elizabeth and Jonathan last week, which we have a weekly podcast called Social Cues that releases on Tuesdays each week, we decided Elizabeth, it was Elizabeth's idea. She said, how about we give people some tips or some ways to try to survive the rest of the year because it's going to be a really tough rest of the year. I don't know about you guys, but I keep forgetting we have a presidential election coming up. Now, in the last <laughs> like two or three weeks, it's been a little bit easier to remember that because it's been in the news a little bit more and, and uh, not, uh, Vice President Biden gave his nominee this week. But but until the last few weeks, I genuinely kept forgetting that we had an election coming up. And pretty soon, I mean, it's going to be hard for any of us to forget that. Um, and if, if 2016 was any indication – uh, 2020 is going to be a rough next few months just in terms of social media discourse. So a couple of tips, really, I mean, I could give in the podcast, which you can find on any anywhere you listen to podcasts, but uh, the Apple podcast app or wherever else, um, we, we list a whole host of, of ways that you can kind of care for yourself and survive social media the rest of the year. But I would give uh, two basic tips. First, um, Give people the benefit of the doubt. 
and treat people with kindness. That's one tip combined. Um, I think advocating for what we believe is right and standing up for what we believe is right and and supporting a candidate that we believe is the right candidate in any office is totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that, you know, even if it may be divisive to do so just inherently by saying you support one person and not another. Um, but I think what's important for us, especially as Christians, though I think this applies to everyone who, even if they don't hold to the Christian faith, is that we treat people with respect and that we love people and that we give people the benefit of the doubt even when we disagree with them. Um, I, I do a lot of advising of some authors and some of our executives on social media. And one of the first things I always tell them is um, assume everyone is out to get you. And I don't say that to like make them afraid or make them feel make them feel like they're backed into a corner. But it's really easy to go into social media kind of naive and and not realize that a lot of people are just out to get public figures on social media or even just out to get normal people like you and me. And so I think we should do everything we can to push back against that. Let's not be out to get people. Let's not be out to start fights. Uh, let's be out to love and honor other people, outdo one another in showing each other honor, even if we disagree about a political candidate or a pub public policy issue or something like that. So show each other kindness and give each other the benefit of the doubt. Uh, don't assume the worst of someone just because of something they do or say on social media. Secondly, and this one is the one I really want to harp on that I think is most important, perhaps. I mean, what I just said is also important, but curate your feed appropriately. One of the things, and I, I talk about this, on, I go a little bit uh, on a little bit of a rant on this on the podcast, so you can listen to that if you want. But one of the things that's most frustrating to me is I work in social media and often I have family members or friends who will talk to me about social media because they know I work in it. And they'll just say, well, it's just so negative or like Twitter is Twitter is my favorite social media platform. And Twitter often gets the shaft on this one. They're like, Twitter is just so negative. Twitter is so negative. And uh, or sometimes people are like, man, my people, I people on my Facebook feed are crazy. You know, my crazy. And you're uncle like, you so picked them. So. Do you exactly. not just then say like you picked yes. them, you pick yes. who's in your feed. Yeah, 100 percent. And what I what I tell people all the time is if you think social media is negative or you're going to come to me and complain about, oh, Twitter is so negative or my crazy uncle on Facebook posts these memes all the time, you can unfollow whoever you want. Now, if you're like, oh, but it's a family member, you can like unfollow them or mute them without actually detaching yourself from them. So you don't like hurt some sort of relationship there. But you have the you are in control of your social media timelines. If you think social media is too negative, you really have no one to blame but yourself. Now, that's not to say social media isn't negative. It is. It is overwhelmingly dominated by people who were mad about things because people talk about what they're mad about more than what they're happy about. That's just human nature. However, if you're upset about your personal feed being too negative, that is a you problem. You have the ability to fix that. And I did, I had to do this in 2016. I think I've shared it on this show before. I unfollowed every major news outlet, every politician or public figure I was following during the 2016 election because it was so toxic of a environment in terms of just the content. And I found myself saying, everyone's being so negative or everyone's being so contentious. And I said to myself, 
Well, then just unfollow everyone. And so I unfollow. And so now, I, you know, I keep it. I keep track of news. It's not like I'm not. It's not like I'm ignorant. I just choose to engage news on my own time by going to news sites rather than having it piped into my feed. So amidst my funny friends or my sports people, I see, you know, political doomsday material. I can go find or that pictures of people's babies. Like yeah, exactly. I'm, I pretty much people post pictures of their babies. I'm that's like they're my my new favorite follow. I'm like, nah, I'm I'm following that person. I don't yeah, really care what yeah. they're talking about. They got babies. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so so th- those are the two tips. I would say treat people with kindness and respect, and and give them benefit of the, benefit of the doubt, um, because you would want others to do the same for you. And and secondly, curate your feed. And if you think your feed, whether it's on Facebook or Twitter, Instagram is where I hear the least amount of negativity but if you, if your instagram feed is somehow negative you have the ability to change that so do it and and don't complain about it because then somehow i'll find you and i'll remind you that it is your your choice to follow who you do so um it will really help you i just think anyone listening as you go through if you have some really political friends or friends who are really caught up in this stuff um just unfollow them, even if it's for a season. Just kind of mute them for for six months or three months, however long we have now. Yeah, three months, um, and and come back to them later. Because <laughs> yeah, this will all be nothing... resolved by Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I hope that, so. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Well, you're, yeah. All right, you and I got to take a very, very brief break. Um, so I'm talking with Chris Martin from Lifeways Social Voices. You need to check out his podcast, Social Cues. He and I will be right back. Continue my conversation with Chris Martin from Lifeway Social Voices. Uh, Chris uh, has just reminded us that we are responsible for our own social media feed. And so if you don't like the quality of the fruit being uh, produced on your feed, um, then it's time to prune. That would be my summation of the earlier conversation. All right, Chris, let's pivot. Um, Facebook is hurting people. That's the uh, that's the headline. What are we talking about? Yeah. Yeah, good question. Um, so there have been a few key departures from Facebook recently of employees. So uh, there's a lot. There's there are a lot of tentacles to this conversation. So let me do the best I can to quickly summarize. Um, Facebook's always under fire for one reason or another, and for good reason usually, in my view. Um, I think Facebook has a lot of ethical problems surrounding it, and I don't I don't need to get into all of those, but some of those come into play here. There have been a number of employees recently at Facebook engineers or others who help create the platform that billions of people use every day uh, who are concerned that Facebook is, quote, hurting people at scale. So everything Facebook does, I'm, I'm in the process of reading a number of books on Facebook and other social platforms in preparation for my own book that I'm writing. And everything Facebook does revolves around things it can do at scale. Because, and at scale, if you're not aware of what that term means, it's it's not going to do anything it can't roll out and create for billions of people to access. So everything Facebook wants to do, um, if they can't scale it up to be used by the billions of people on its platform, they don't want to do it. And so uh, one of the employees who recently left said, uh, I think Facebook is hurting people at scale. Um, And the reason he thinks that is because the platform that he works on, the algorithm of Facebook, um, and I'm not sure exactly, he's an engineer at Facebook, I'm not sure exactly what he did. Engineers could do all kinds of things at Facebook. Um, 
but he's concerned that the algorithm and the things that are at play behind Facebook are are hurting people rather than helping people. And it's kind of a Silicon Valley um, trope or cliche that uh, every company there wants to change the world for the better. And Facebook's claim for for a long time has been they, they want to connect the world to uh, to to help you know expose people to diversity of culture and uh, new ideas and and just connect people for the better. But what the, what the employee is concerned about and what people like me are concerned about is Facebook and other social platforms want to connect the world for the good, but they sort of have a naive view of humanity. They, they, the negative things that go on on their platform, they almost sweep under the rug or just don't deal with as thoroughly as they should. So Facebook has all kinds of content moderation issues. And recently, you know, it's so funny, Facebook will get um, criticized by the political left for not censoring Donald Trump or some other politicians content that that they think is harmful. And then Facebook will get con- criticized by the political right for for putting a warning on a piece of content that they think is is harmful in some way. And so Facebook, in one sense, I sympathize with them because it seems like they're trying to please two masters and they can just never quite get it right. At the same time, I also think that they've created a bit of this problem themselves by having poor policies. So when a bunch of advertisers like Coca-Cola, Starbucks, uh, Under Armour, I think, um, and a Patagonia North Face, I'm trying to think of the others, kind of initiated an ad boycott in July and said, we're not going to run <clears throat> the millions of dollars of Facebook ads we run for the month because we think Facebook's ad policies or Facebook's content policies are bad, that they allow too much harmful content on their platform. Uh, Facebook called together a meeting because a number of employees were concerned as well with their moderation policies. And Mark Zuckerberg just basically said, deal with it. I mean, he said, we want we want Facebook to be a, a place for everyone to connect and we want to protect free speech. And sometimes that free speech is is bad speech. Um, and, and that's I'm not here to criticize or or hold up that um, philosophy, but Facebook's taken a lot of heat for that. And a number of people think that they're hurting people at scale, not helping people at scale. And so I think the um, the thing that is of interest to me when it comes to things like this is not the inner workings of Facebook and whether it's right or wrong. But I think it's really important for us as social media users to look beyond the content, to look beyond the content that we consume every day on social media and realize that there is more at play than just the content. So there's a great quote from uh, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death about Lewis Mumford. Lewis Mumford, Neil Postman called him a great noticer. And what he says about Lewis Mumford is Lewis Mumford looked at a clock uh, and he, he didn't just look at it to see what time it was. He looked at a clock and said, this little man-made device that has diagrammed time on a circle is governing how we all live our lives. Hmm. You know, clocks were not made in the creation narrative. And I think similarly for social media, we need to look behind the content we see on our feeds, that funny cat video or that cute picture of a baby, as you mentioned. And just like Mumford looked behind the numbers on a clock and he noticed that the clock was doing more than just providing time. It was governing, it is governing our everyday lives. And we need to look beyond the content, beyond the feed on social media and say, what is this doing to me 
beyond just providing this funny video or this cute picture or this terrible argument. And we need to say, what is this feed doing to me? How is it affecting my life? We should all be great noticers like Lewis Mumford was and say, what is this water I'm swimming in and how poisonous and toxic is it? We shouldn't just swim about and say, oh, isn't the water nice today? We should recognize that the water is a bit poisoned and and see what we can do to combat that. All right. You guys can check out everything Chris is doing at – you're going to send them to Substack? Is that where we're sending people? Termsofservice.substack.com because there you can get the Social Cues podcast. You can get uh, access to the article that we just talked about. Former Facebook employee shares concerns about Facebook leadership and policy. It is Facebook is hurting people at scale. Um, and then you can also uh, get the Saturday Funnies, which is my new favorite part of what uh, Chris is doing. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. That's Chris Martin. You can find him at Lifeway Social Voices. You can also find him on Twitter, Chris Martin 17. We'll be right back. All right. So what podcast uh, do you have on your little podcast player thing on your phone? Uh, I have Social Cues. I have NPR's Hidden Brain. I have Dr. Albert Moeller's uh, Daily Briefing, just called The Briefing. And, of course, I have uh, I have this. I have uh, Mornings with Carmen. Uh, in order that, I can most easily share it with others. So um, subscribe. You can subscribe to the podcast, and that makes it really easy for you to be notified when there's a new episode that maybe you have missed, and you can share it with someone new. We got a whole other hour of Mornings with Carmen up next I'm going to lead off by uh, talking about my parents' 60th anniversary, which would have been yesterday if my dad were still living. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.